let's have a ball at Faneuil Hall. We love the old town team. Take the green line to the sicko sign. We love the old town team. Oh, the kid, yes, Remdog PD, you can wake. This is the Old Town Podcast, a Red Sox pod here at The Athletic. Tim McMaster along with Jen McCaffrey this week. We're getting back to the current Red Sox roster today. Yes, we're talking current baseball, even if they're not playing it yet. And we're talking about defense, how it's been, how it could be if baseball returns in 2020. And to help us out, we have Mark Simon joining us from Sports Info Solutions. SIS, the authors behind the Fielding Bible, uh, Volume 5 is now available, and also the inventors of the defensive run saved metric, which you've probably heard about if you follow metrics at all. It's one of the big ones on the defensive side. Uh, subscribe to the show now if you haven't, and rate and review us if you can. Um, Mark, I'll start with this. Thanks for coming on. Hope you're staying safe. Yes, uh, I am in Bethlehem, Pennsylvania. Eastern Pennsylvania got hit pretty hard. Uh, our company, fortunately, is doing all right uh, at the moment, uh, and we are just sitting and waiting and doing bits and pieces of work as we can and uh, looking forward to hopefully there being a season at some point. Yeah, so you can get back to tracking these numbers. I guess first off, explain you know your background for listeners and who aren't familiar with you and, and how you became part of SIS and this whole thing got going. So my background uh, starts professionally uh, in around 1995. I covered uh, different sports, high school, college pros for the Trenton Times in Trenton, New Jersey. Uh, they were the Thunder were the Red Sox affiliate then. Uh, so we got in on players like Nomar Garcia Para on the ground floor, which was pretty cool. After six and a half years there, I went to ESPN. I worked for about 16 years there, uh, the heart of which was spent on Baseball Tonight as the information backbone of the show, helping support the producers and the talent, people like Carl Ravitch, Harold Reynolds, John Crock, uh, Alex Cora, uh, even as well, uh, to an extent, when he was there, uh, had a, a very good experience with him uh, and experience with Nomar uh, as well. Uh, ESPN's interest in baseball started to diminish. Uh, I switched over and helped run the uh, Twitter account that I think a lot of people are familiar with, ESPN Stats Info. Uh, which started at zero and is uh, nicely uh, doing very nicely right now. Uh, but as ESPN's interest in baseball diminished, um, I guess, so did my interest, I guess, in being there. Uh, and in 2018, I got out and went to Sports Info Solutions, a company that's been around since 2003, based in eastern Pennsylvania. Uh, what they do is uh, they create metrics and tools to help major league teams and NFL teams evaluate personnel and strategic decisions on the field. Uh, things like, where should I position my fielders? How good is this player defensively? We chart a lot of things besides defense, but defense is kind of our bread and butter. Defensive run saved was devised uh, in the early 2000s. John Dewan and Bill James were uh, the people that were instrumental in that. John Dewan, the owner of the company, he previously owned Stats Inc. Uh, we have a number of other systems in place to evaluate defense. I find defensive run saved to be the most user-friendly of those. Um, and my job is to be kind of public facing as it relates to baseball, while many people in the company deal on the private side of it, dealing with the teams and stuff. Uh, we try and make our information accessible to the public, uh, whether it be through a variety of print, broadcast, uh, and other projects that we have. We have a blog, a podcast, uh, things of that sort. Uh, so that kind of sums up what we do. And every so often we put out a book and we put out a book 
uh, this winter, the Fielding Bible, Volume 5, with Matt Chapman on the cover that summarizes all the different things that we've done uh, on the defensive side and looks at every team and every player in the majors as well. Yeah, and I guess the, you know, you mentioned DRS defensive runs saved. And before we get into the Red Sox specifically and a lot of the players on the Red Sox, if you could just explain where, because I know it's it's always changing and you mentioned the update to the Bible and there's some changes to it there. Um, but explain what exactly defensive runs saved is. It ends up being a positive or negative number for people that don't even know that part about it. But if you're a good defense player or above average, you're going to end up with a positive number. If you're not, it's negative. But how do you come up with what what goes into the number? So I think that comes from asking ourselves the question, like, what would we want to know about a player defensively? And I think for anyone on the field, the first thing you would want to know is how often do they turn balls into outs? And the idea being balls that they could turn into outs and also plays that are somewhat more improbable. And instead of treating every ball hit as equal, the one that's hit in the hole that he has to make a move for uh, has a higher value for him if he's able to make the play, whereas the routine grounder, if he boots it, that's a big loss for him because every other shortstop in baseball is making that play regularly, so he gets penalized for that. So that's the biggest aspect of defensive runs saved is are you able to take balls and turn them into outs i read something that and this is somewhat simplistic but for outfielders uh, if you're making a lot of running catches on the warning track uh on balls that aren't particularly uh that aren't in the air for a long time you're probably going to be pretty good at defensive run save that's a kiermeyer that's a byron buxton that's the elite players in the game um and then it looks at things that are position-specific, like if you're a shortstop, when there's a double play potential and there's a ground ball hit to you, do you get the double play? Uh, or if you're a first baseman and there's a bunt that you feel, do you get the out? Uh, if you're a catcher, are you able to frame pitches for strikes? Uh, there are a lot of different things that go into it. If you're an outfielder, we're looking at your throwing arm. And also, uh, if uh, you had the chance to rob a home run, uh, if you made the play, uh, you're literally saving runs there. So you're getting a nice spike for that. The end result of that is a smushing of a lot of numbers. And this for the, the non-number person here. Um, you're putting a lot of numbers together. And in the end... Uh, you are trying to get a run value. How many runs did this player save or cost his team? The elite players, the average player is going to be zero. The elite player is probably going to be up around 25 to 30. The very good players are going to be in that 10 to 20 range. The just above average players are going to be a little above that. Uh, and then the, it's the same kind of scale for below that. If you're terrible, uh, you're probably going to be close to negative 20. Now, I had this discussion with a coach actually the other day, and I said this, it's our job to assess the amount of value that a player provided. It's the coach's job to make the decision, is this guy a bad defensive player, or a really good defensive player? Do we need, can we pick up clues from his number that can help him in becoming a better defensive player uh, or fix a flaw in his defensive game? So I think sometimes I'll, I'll make judgments on a guy, but the judgment should probably be better left to the talent evaluators, the coaches, the GMs, etc. We're just here to tell you uh, essentially a number that you can put to a guy's value. Does that make sense? 
Definitely. Yeah, Mark. So I guess like when we're talking about the Red Sox specifically, they haven't been that great, uh, especially <laughs> defensive runs saved over the past couple of years. So I guess, yeah, uh, can you kind of like break that down a little bit for us just in general and then maybe we can get into a couple of specific players? Yeah, sure. So if you take just last year as an example, um, we do it. We have the American League and the National League separated on our pages. And you can find all this stuff at fieldingbible.com, if I can just give a little plug. The Red Sox are below average. They come out at negative 28. Now, why do they come out at negative 28? That's an interesting kind of thing to take a look at. Uh, and the big aspect in that is uh, they didn't do particularly well against ground balls last year. Uh, there were a number of balls that, that slipped through, maybe more than would typically slip through. Uh, and we can get into the specifics of that as we go. Uh, Mookie Betts typically is uh, upper echelon defensively. He's a 20 to 30 defensive run save guy. He pulled back a little bit last year. That's not to say that he necessarily got worse. He just he wasn't that megastar mega defensively that he's been in the past. They've also had good catching numbers in the past, Vasquez and Leon. Uh, those did not necessarily materialize as much last year. If you want to look at who the standard setters were in baseball defensively last season, coincidentally, it's the teams that were really good. The top three in the American League, top four in the American League were the Astros, the Indians, the Rays, and the A's. So defense was a pretty good indicator whether or not you were good or bad. And I'll give you the bottom four, too. The Orioles, the Mariners, the Tigers, and the White Sox. If you could turn balls into outs, you tended to be a pretty good team last year. If you don't turn balls into outs, you're going to be down near the bottom. So when you look at the Red Sox over, let's say, the last five years, uh, Mark, and this kind of goes to, I actually, we can swing this to Jen. Uh, so 2015, they were negative two, which is, I guess, right around average. Then 16 and 17, they were fantastic. Uh, 69 and then 79. And then 2018, they dropped off to negative 18, although didn't have that big of an effect, I guess, since they won 108 games. That offense was so good. And then last year, you mentioned the negative 28. So, Jen, I'll ask you this. From 2017, when they were a 79, to 2018, where they go to the negative 18, as a reporter who's at the ballpark day in and day out watching this team, did you was it visible to you as a reporter that this team got markedly worse defensively between those two seasons? I think honestly, when I'm like thinking about it, last year was the one that stood out more than anything, more than what I remember from 17 to 18. I remember last year, um, there were just so many uncharacteristic plays, whether it was like balls dropping between Jackie and Mookie or Vasquez behind the plate, not being like as sharp, um, whether it was receiving or even just throwing down. Um, I, I feel like to the naked eye when, you know, you're just putting this in layman's terms and obviously not, it, there's nothing scientific necessarily to it. It just, Jackie wasn't even as sharp in the outfield on some of the plays or jumps that he would get um, some of the throws even and yeah Mookie was just uncharacteristically off so that was like something I, I recognized from last year more so than any of the previous years um, and I you know I'd have to maybe go back and read through some of my stuff to see you know from 17 to 18 but when I think about it last year really did stick out uh, of how much uh, less sharp, I guess, they seemed. Um, and I don't know if that was just a, a lack of focus or, you know, everything that went into the beginning of last year with them kind of ramping up slowly, um, if, if that was a result. But uh, but it was noticeable last year for sure. Yeah, that's interesting. And and Mark, when you th she, Jen mentioned uh, Jackie Bradley 
And his numbers, it's kind of funny, they swing with the team numbers here. In 2017, he was a plus 15, which is one of his best scores. And then he really dropped the last two years, plus one and minus two. And there's been plenty of talk about that in, I think, Boston, around the media and things about how um, statistically and metrically, Jackie Bradley wasn't scoring as well, but then he's still making those spectacular plays. He's still got the rocket arm. So how does that play out for you guys when you're when you're doing these numbers? I think most people, if you ask them, is Jackie Bradley Jr. still an elite center fielder, they would say yes, but in 2019, the numbers don't really back that up. Yeah, he is. Uh, he's definitely first team all polarizing uh, when we <laughs> when we put up our notes. Uh, he he always uh, like if I say anything that isn't super positive about him, uh, it's hard. Now I, I want to make a point to what Jen was talking about too. That sometimes it's hard to recognize like bad defense because for us bad defense isn't our company. Bad defense isn't necessarily bobbling a ball. It's the idea that the ball was hit into a spot where you probably should have gotten to the ball, um, which I think to the naked eye is, is just in general, I, I would say for myself, is a harder thing to pick up. Uh, as it re- as relates to Jackie Bradley, all right, so the reason that he typically rated high for us was because he was doing things beyond catching balls. I'm looking at it right now. He was among the leaders in our outfield arm rating in 2016. In 2017, he had a bunch of home run robberies, uh, which get tacked on to your defensive run save value, and you get a very nice spike for that. Um, Jackie Bradley Jr. is a is typically a good catcher of balls. He's not necessarily elite, but every center fielder is really good. And that's the thing that you have to, I think, take into account with this, that when you have the guys, and I mentioned two of them before, Kiermaier and Buxton, uh, that the difference between them and Jackie Bradley Jr. probably isn't, like, huge, but it is, you know, X number of doubles and triples taken away per year. Over 162 games, you probably don't notice it because it's, like, one every, what, 10 games or so. So you don't necessarily... uh, pick up on that, and you see the great catches. And when you see the great catches, uh, you're impressed by uh, by what he can do. Uh, so I guess what I would say is Jackie Bradley has a good history. He's had a bad recency, uh, or by his standards, a bad recency. Uh, and he's someone on whom uh, I feel like it's very tough to get a statistical handle on because he's been, as, a, as I've kind of articulated here, all over the place. <laughs> If we're kind of sticking with the outfield here and, you know, we we know what Jackie kind of means to the Red Sox outfield, but uh, J.D. Martinez obviously isn't uh, isn't nearly as strong an outfielder. So I guess what what can you uh, look at um, from from numbers to kind of back up, I guess, that sentiment when you see him out there kind of struggling with some uh, some of the balls and and things that he can't uh, handle quite as easily? Yeah, I I guess it honestly. In simplest terms, he's best suited for uh, DH. He is uh, in 2016. He was uh, he cost his team 22 runs. We actually um, I'm embarrassed to admit this, but it's it's funny. So we had a defensive run save fantasy league uh, at ESPN, and uh, we had a rule that you could take one player and you got the opposite of his value. And I'm pretty sure <laughs> that he was the first player taken for that particular. Uh, area That's him awesome. or Matt Kemp, uh, but yeah, he he's not someone that you would 
put in the field. He doesn't, uh, in particular, it seems like he has a history of getting, not getting to the ball that is hit to the deepest part of the ballpark. Uh, there was a time where he could get uh, to the balls that were hit shallow, uh, but uh, that time does not appear to be now. Uh, his numbers are, are such, as I said, that um, we have a supplemental thing. Actually, it's a good thing to bring up here. Uh, we call it good plays and misplays, where we have 30 categories of good things that a fielder can do and 60 categories of bad things that a fielder can do. Uh, and your typical outfielder, uh, like your typical all right outfielder, will have a few more misplays than good plays, or they'll be one-to-one, -one, or the really good ones will have a more good than bad. J.D. Martinez last year was two good and 12 bad, and that's not good. Yeah, that's not good at all. So if you're home listening to this podcast on the Red Sox, if you're bored in your house, why not spend some time on yourself? Our sponsor today, Manscaped, is here to make sure you're well-groomed above and below the belt. Manscaped promotes clean hygiene when it comes to shaving thanks to their Lawnmower 3.0. Manscaped is forever changing the grooming game with their Perfect Package 3.0. This third-generation trimmer features a cutting-edge ceramic blade to prevent manscaping accidents. Shaving is about to be nick-free thanks to Manscaped's advanced skin-safe technology. Subscribe to the perfect package and get a new replacement blade refill for your lawnmower trimmer delivered to your door every three months, making sure your trimmer always stays fresh and clean. Do yourself a favor and always use the right tools for the job. Get 20% off and free shipping with the code THEATHLETIC at manscaped.com. That's 20% off with free shipping at manscaped.com and use code THEATHLETIC. And for a limited time, subscribers get not one, but two free gifts, the Shed Travel Bag, $39 value, and the patented high-performance anti-chafing Manscaped boxer briefs. So go to manscaped.com today and use the code ATHLETIC. So right field, when JD's not there, they're much better, obviously, with Mookie when he was yep. there. And 2016 and 2017, Mookie was a 30. You mentioned he's usually between 20 and 30. Um, he also knew how to play right field at Fenway Park, which is obviously a tricky position. You almost need a center fielder. So now they transition to Verdugo, who comes in. Um, and when you look at DRS for Verdugo with the Dodgers, he was actually really good in less games. So what do you think the change is going to be? I know it's it's looking ahead. It's a new ballpark he hasn't played in. But when you think of substituting in Verdugo for Mookie Betts, how much of a drop-off do you anticipate for the Red Sox? It, it's funny because he doesn't look the part because he's, like, big and kind of, I guess, he's bigger. And you wouldn't necessarily think of him as being solid in the field. But last year... Like you can, I guess maybe you can work with that uh, if you position your guys right. And the Dodgers are uh, have a very, very good re reputation of positioning their guys right. And my hunch with him is that his numbers last year were partly a product of that. Uh, and uh, I guess the proof will be in the performance this year. The thing that you lose with Mookie Betts is quite simply is just reliability. The guy caught everything typically. Uh, it's funny, one year he was great catching balls, uh, I guess, in the right field corner, probably, at Fenway Park. The other, he was really great uh, coming in on the ball uh, or catching the shallow fly ball. Um, you lose reliability. You know he could, a couple of times a year, take one, bring one back uh, from being over the fence. Uh, you lose the arm, which um, played very well uh, in, in that ballpark and played very well uh, across the American League. 
uh, I think you just kind of lose comfort as as opposed to Verdugo, who you've got this one one year of data on, and you're not really sure necessarily of what it's telling you at this point. If we're moving to the infield, I guess maybe we can start with uh, Raphael Devers and someone that's kind of really progressed over the past few years. Um, obviously, still has a lot of room for improvement, but what what, do you, what have you seen from uh, from him the past couple of years? So this is an interesting one because if you're familiar with the MLB Statcast uh, outs above average stat, uh, they contrast with us on him, and there aren't a lot of players on which we contrast. Our stats are fairly similar. Uh, in terms of how they're compiled. The uh, the thing that we would say about Devers was that we felt like he was improving, uh, particularly on balls that were hit. And now we can actually, this is something that we can actually chart with our defensive run saved, on balls specifically when he had to go to his left to field it. Uh, he had better numbers last year uh, than he did previously. Uh, he's a little shaky, though, going to his right, which I presume means that the stuff that's down the line is eluding him uh, in situations maybe where it shouldn't. He also, and I was just talking about that ratio, th- this is kind of a, a, I guess, somewhat of a success story. When you're a third baseman, it's hard, uh, admittedly. In 2018, he had 13 good plays and 43 misplays. So in 2019, he had a similar number of missed plays. He had 44. So still not great, but he upped his number of good plays to 29. So you saw better things from him in the field last season. And I think given his age, there's still room for upside there. Like the aging for defense, you tend to be at your very best when you're in the earliest part of your career. So this is the time for him to get better and then for for him to hopefully kind of keep uh, keep it steady for a while. So I would say improvement for him Contrast to what StatCast said, StatCast seemed to like him a little bit more. Um, improvement for him, still room to grow. Definitely still room to grow. You mentioned that the um, he made more better plays and not necessarily yes. less bad plays, which I think is it passes the eye test as well. Jen, maybe, you know you can jump in here too, but it, it feels to me that watching Devers last year, um, you would still get the the errors would kind of come in in chunks where you'd make a couple in a game or you'd see a few over the week. But there was so many more plays where he would, whether it's charging a ball and barehanding it or making a strong throw, where you'd watch him and think, wow, that was a really good play. And a few years ago, I don't think we thought we'd ever see that because it almost felt like he was never just going to be able to play third and it was just a matter of time before they had to move him across the diamond. Does that... Does that make sense that that he maybe he's not making the he's still making the same amount of mistakes, but he's so much better at making the good play, Jen? Do you see that on the field? Yeah, definitely. I think last year it was it was very noticeable that he would get to balls that you didn't see him get to the previous year, um, that he would make throws more accurately or just have a better read on things. Um, and I think that was a product, too, of Cora really kind of drilled into him um, like daily work. Uh, obviously, Cora was a pretty solid fielder himself, but um, but but would work with him. You would always see him out there on, uh, you know, before games kind of hand hands on uh, doing drills with him and Ramon Vasquez, the infield coordinator, uh, infield coach for them. And um, even in spring training, obviously bringing in Mike Lowell, another uh, obviously really good defensive third baseman and, and just sort of working with him to really kind of shore up some things. So I, I don't I mean, I have to assume that helped. 
um, kind of drill in a lot of just the footwork and kind of the the arm angle and, and all the kind of things that you have to think about when you're you know playing that position. Obviously, um, you, like we said, the numbers kind of bear out that he did improve. So you have to think that that was probably uh, those those guys, those veteran guys, you know, with with strong defensive backgrounds helping him out and giving him those pointers. Uh, probably probably helped him and you know assuming he'll carry that into this year as well yeah sorry I, I should point out too he played 36 more games in 19 than he did in 18 so the fact that the that the errors and misplays were about the same is a good thing for him he's embraced it too right I mean he's putting in the work but you see on the field when he does make an error how angry he gets at himself that there's there's a lot of pride in the defense and I think that goes a long way as far as him getting better at it yeah, absolutely. You know, I think he's an emotional player, you know, any in, in a lot of aspects at the plate, you know, in the in the field um, and just kind of I think, yeah, he he does have that pride of, you know, wanting to get better and knows that he's got a long ways to go. Um, but but like we said, you know, he's still young and uh, there's a lot of room for improvement. So I think that, you know, having that in the back of his mind is is kind of what he leans on. Mark, you mentioned that he's better going to his left, which is maybe a good thing for the Red Sox because I think when you look at the numbers, Xander Bogart's not great going to his right um, <laughs> in that hole. And overall, your numbers, they don't really support Xander very well as far as a, his defensive abilities. Obviously, last year, he was tremendous offensively. Yeah, this is an interesting one, too. And he's kind of uh, the second player from the Red Sox who would be on the all-polarizing team um, because I get a lot of people who say he's a lot better than what we've got him for. The last four years, we've had him at negative 10, negative 12, negative 14, and negative 14. And that's essentially bottom of the barrel. And I don't think that many Red Sox fans would say that he's that bad defensively. I think the issue, so the issue on, on him is this, that Alex... Uh, Cora tended to play him very close to the middle, uh, which made it challenging for him to cover the ball in the hole. Um, and he wasn't necessarily great at trying to get to that ball. And plus, a lot of balls are hit too hard for him to even get to. So the positioning aspect of him is kind of the thing to watch, that if you, if you put him in a more normal spot, um, how would the numbers change? I think the Red Sox felt comfortable and have over four years because there have been good years in there too playing him the way that they do and just living with the consequences uh of it because also in in Fenway too like you're not going to necessarily play a shortstop uh where you would typically uh, in the major leagues because left field is so so close you might play him over a little bit more towards uh towards left to towards the second base bag more or less yeah, that makes a lot of sense. And you mentioned Red Sox fans getting mad that he's considered bad. But, Jen, I don't think Red Sox fans would say he's a great defender at any point. I mean, when you think about what Xander brings, that's not first on anyone's list. Yeah, you know, I think uh, he's serviceable, I guess, right. if you will. Kind of, putting he, it. he makes <laughs> the he makes the plays. You know, the the average plays, I guess, if you will. He's not going to be out there, you know, making you know spectacular plays, eye popping plays um, at short. But he really is. You know, the the offense is what kind of his bread and butter is. What kind of uh, you know he brings to the table for the most part. Catcher's different, obviously, than any other position, Mark. And and you base a lot of your stuff on. Do they get to the ball? Do they not? So what goes into your scoring and rating when it comes to a catcher like Christian Vasquez? Uh, so we look at a lot of different things uh, for catchers. We look at um, the fielding of balls, which could just be bunts or balls that are hit in front of the plate. Some catchers aren't great at that, but that doesn't typically impact their rating by a lot. 
the things that will uh, hit a catcher's rating positively or negatively are pitch framing. Uh, and we actually uh, have a system by which on each pitch, we award a certain value to the pitcher, the catcher, the batter, and the umpire. Um, so the catcher isn't necessarily getting the full credit for was the pitcher strike or not, um, which is uh, interesting. I think the catcher and the umpire are the most important to that because if Bill Miller is behind the plate, you're much more likely to get the pitch that's off the outside corner uh, than you are if um, Mark Wegner or Joe West, uh, just names that might be familiar, are behind the plate. Those guys tend to have smaller strike zones. Christian Vasquez has a very good pitch framing history uh, throughout his career. Then we check, uh, are you good at blocking pitches in the dirt? And actually, that one's fairly simple. If you're watching a game, the way that we do it is just, if the pitch was in the dirt, uh, did you block it or did you not? Uh, and if you, uh, and the idea being that if you missed it, the runner advanced uh, a base or the batter went to first base on a strikeout. Uh, the really good catchers are going to have block rates that are in the mid to high 90%. The mediocre ones uh, are going to be below 90 uh, so uh, San, uh, Christian Vasquez does not have a great history in that regard. Uh, and then we look at stolen bases uh, in terms of volume and in terms of success against you. And a catcher who has uh, a low success rate, like last year, JT Real Muto was the standard setter. Uh, Salvador Perez usually does really well from the Royals uh, in that. Um, Vasquez tends to be slightly above average in that, not excessively so. And then the last thing we have a, um, it's a little weird. It's hard, it's hard to explain, but like a comparative ERA thing where we'll look at two pit, two catchers, uh, and look at how they handled each pitcher on the staff. And if one guy had a, uh, one ERA for a pitcher uh, over like 12 starts, and the other guy had like a four ERA for the pitcher over 10 starts. The guy with the one ERA is going to get a little bit of a spike for that. Uh, so we, we consider it like a staff handling metric. That's a hard one to really quantify. That's the way that we do it. Christian Vasquez in 2014 and 2017. Uh, rated very, very well in our defensive run save. Last year, I would say he was just in the good category. Uh, the pitch framing was good. Uh, the other stuff was just okay. If you're looking at a, a guy like Michael Chavis, obviously just has the one year and kind of bounced around a lot. Uh, they still haven't really exactly found out what they're going to do with him, whether it's first or second, um, and kind of you know moving him around a lot. How do you uh, evaluate a guy like him and, and maybe where he, he fits best uh, on a team that has a couple of holes like that? Yeah, so the, it's hard to, to look at guys when the samples are small like that. He's at 49 games at first, 45 at uh, second. Uh, and he rated basically average at both of those. Uh, when you look at the good to bad, he had decent good to bad numbers. Um, I think that I think that would tell me the jury's still out. <laughs> um, so we actually have some other things that we give to teams too, um, like approach to balls. Like uh, how was the guy at fielding when he was on his forehand or when he was on his backhand? or all the, the different sprinting uh, for a ball, jumping for a ball, diving for a ball. All of those things a team could look at and try and uh, use to assess. I don't know that what the answer is on uh, Michael Chavis. Uh, he's uh, 
his numbers are acceptable uh, essentially in both spots. He doesn't uh, like nothing jumps off the page at you at this point in his career. We do, we do, so we generally say like most stats, you would say three years is a good sampling of data for a player, um, and then just one year kind of t- or half a year tells you the story. Uh, it's like it becomes like a storytelling thing. Like uh, it tells you was he valuable. It doesn't necessarily predict if he will be valuable down the road. He's a guy that came up as a third baseman. Obviously, there's no place for him in Boston there, so he played first and second. But speaking of guys who play multiple positions like that, and in Boston you think of Brock Holt over the last few years, um, how does that work out as far as – I know you give a different DRS for each position, Mm -hmm. but for the most part when you have those super utility guys across the league – are they generally positives at all of the different places they they play, or do you tend to have guys that are really have a strong position and then they grade negatively at the other ones, but they're forced to kind of play all over because teams need that guy? Yeah, good, uh, good question. Um, I'll, I'll give you an example that is more local to me. Uh, someone like Jeff McNeil on the Mets plays second, third, and left, and he's like a smidge above at, all of them, and then the sum is something decent. Cody Bellinger last year played center right and first base and was good at all three. Um, there are there are some guys that are really uh, good at it. David Fletcher of the Angels uh, would be another one uh, that had a particularly good year at a couple of uh, different spots. Uh, there are some guys that can do it. There are some guys that can't. Everyone's held to the same standard. Like you're held to the same standard when you're playing second base as everybody else, even though you may play other positions, as you said. Um, so, uh, yeah, I, I I think that it's it's if if you can do it, uh, it makes you extremely valuable for this reason. Though it means that a team doesn't have to put use a roster spot to plug someone else in there when you, you're essentially filling the role of two to three different players on a team by being able to do that well. And I think that's why we've seen more multi-position guys flourish recently. One guy, uh, when we were talking about the outfield, we kind of forgot to ask about was uh, Pilar, Kevin Pilar. Obviously, Verdugo um, was expected to miss the beginning of the year with the back. I'm still not really 100% sure where that <laughs> lands if the season even starts. But where would uh, where does Pilar kind of fall in your in your rankings in terms of how he 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 uh his his defense works for for the Red Sox. All right. So he's really interesting because he's making the transition from center to right and there's actually an article in the book that explains like the value jump that you get if you go from center to a corner or a corner to center. Uh he played 27 games in right last year and was fine. We have him at, at two runs saved, which is perfectly decent. I uh, I think his good day is in center field. Um, he may have uh, he he may have already peaked. Um, he's he's someone that that will I think, if there's a season, immediately become a very big fan favorite in Toronto. The kids dress up as him for Halloween uh, with uh, Superman shirts. Uh, it's he's a big deal there. Like I I went through uh, Twitter searching for that, and there were multiple examples uh, because he plays all out. And as he explained it, um, we actually we we interviewed him for our podcast. Uh, 
he says he has to play all out because he's not athletically gifted. Like he's not someone that that's going to wow you uh, with his speed. He's not. He's going to be uh, on the slower end. Uh, so he has to make the jumps and the dives and the slides for balls. And eventually, I think that adds up to a lot of wear and tear on the body, uh, and it probably impacts him. Um, I would say in center field, he might have a little bit of a challenge. Right field, he he should probably be fine uh, and probably even uh, better than fine. The thing that will be interesting for him, and he talked about this in with uh, converting to right in San Francisco, was learning the ballpark and learning the angles of the wall. And he talked about how in San Francisco it took him like a month to do that uh, and get familiar with everything, but he was taking balls every day because... There's a lot of challenges out there, certainly in right field uh, in Fenway, uh, uh, especially going into the corner and then going into the gaps. Uh, I think he will be uh, he will be a fun one to watch. Uh, it might not necessarily translate into supreme greatness, but he'll I think he'll be uh, decent there. Yeah, he gets there at the end a lot. Um, yep. When I when I was at MLB.com working, it was when Statcast was you know first coming out the first couple of years, um, and the thought from that perspective on Pilar was that he made these spectacular catches, but a lot of the times a better center fielder wouldn't have had to make a spectacular catch. They would have been kind of there waiting for it because a lot of times he got bad jumps. Do, do your numbers kind of help grade that, the bad jump factor and, and getting slow starts on balls? So honestly, the stat cast metric that, that rates jumps is, is very good. And like I would I would say to people, Take a look at that in conjunction uh, with our numbers. Uh, the the jumps aspect will come out for us uh, in the the final version of the stat itself. Like the run saved is a product of the fact that he might be uh, good at getting jumps uh, on balls or not. And um, yeah, he he's uh, he's he acknowledged again that that like. Um, he has to make up for his skills. He was like a 30th round pick or something of that ilk. Uh, and he has to find other ways to catch balls uh, because he he doesn't have the skills of a of an elite outfielder. Uh, again, though, a fun watch. Uh, and yes, definitely look at the stat cast numbers, look at our numbers uh, kind of combined, and I think you'll get a pretty good story on him. And that's one of the great things you can do as people dive more and more into the metrics is take all of these different tools, DRS and Stackcast and everything, and, and you can kind of make up your own opinion by combining them. Um, I have one last thing for you, Mark. This is a season that we hopefully hopefully happens um, at some point this summer, but it's probably not going to be what we expect to happen. We may not even have teams in all their home ballparks. Does that impact what you guys do at all if, if all these games end up being played and Arizona or Florida or in, in different matchups as far as how many games are in different ballparks. Does that factor into your collection of data at all? We're actually uh, good good on that, that if, if that kind of stuff happens, we're not reliant on um, certain things uh, like the, telemet- the telemetry tools that, that other places might need. We can, our system uh, is such that we just wear whatever the field is. We can know, as long as we know the fence dimensions, we turn the field into a grid. And each spot on the field essentially has a value attached to it, depending on how hard the ball was hit um, and uh, a number of other factors. Uh, 
that certainly being the the most uh, important of them. Um, so no, we're we'll be good as long as they're playing. We just need games. And I should note too that with Korean baseball starting, uh, our company has started to track uh, Korean baseball, and we will be tracking it uh, in full this year for for anyone that is uh, interested in the defensive metrics of Korean players, uh, we will have them in due time. Got to stay busy. Yes. (laughs) All right. Well, thanks so much for coming on. Mark Simon from uh, Sports Info Solutions. You can check out the Bible, the Fielding Bible, Volume 5. It's available now. There's so much good information in there. Um, And you have your, because you have your own podcast, you have the interviews and transcripts from the players that you've had on your podcast as part of that as well. Um, What's the name of your podcast so people can check it out? We keep it really simple. It's the Sports Info Solutions Baseball Podcast. All right, great. Thanks for coming on, Mark. You got it. All right, everybody, you can save 40% off a subscription to The Athletic. Go to theathletic.com slash wickedpod for that. Um, Subscribe if you liked what you heard here. We'll be back every Monday here, and hopefully baseball is back soon as well. For Mark Simon and Jen McCaffrey, I'm Tim McMaster. Thanks for tuning in to the Old Town Podcast. Oh, 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 oh,